Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the GNO Cornhole League, Cornhole League kicked off their new season on Monday, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the third annual Arkansas Drone Unmanned Aircraft Systems Summit kicked off today in Fayetteville and Little Rock. Thank you for joining us for Episode 2, State of California versus Charles Manson. Tonight, in Part 1, we'll talk about the victims of the 1960 murders orchestrated by Manson, the Manson family members involved in the murders, and the investigations conducted by police in Los Angeles in the wake of the murders. We'll also talk about the jailhouse statement that broke the case and led to indictments for multiple counts of first-degree murder against Manson and some of his followers. As always, we're a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I'm having a wonderful day, and, you know, we have some uh, late-breaking developments to get to here at the top of the show, so I'll keep it quick, but my goodness, that uh, unmanned drone thing sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, they're still they're still doing it tomorrow. Uh, it started today and it goes through tomorrow. Uh, you might want to look on the website and get yourself a ticket and go down. It's being held in Fayetteville and Little Rock, and I think it's simultaneously. Okay, okay that's awesome. Well, I definitely want to see how your week's going now that you're back at work. How's everything going? <laughs> oh, it's it's pretty much the same day after day after day. <laughs> Is New Orleans so, still trashed after all the Mardi Gras? Um, I saw beads on the trees tonight on my way home, yeah. They'll be there for a few months. Uh, yeah, they're oh, pretty man. good about, uh, I know after Bacchus, they had a crew come through and sweep up all the trash because the spot we were in is the end of the parade route right before they go into the convention center. And so right. the people on the float would throw off all their old boxes, their old bags that had beads and throws and things like that in them, and they just toss them into the street. And so after the parade, they had you know crews come through and sweep up the streets and 
um, collect all the trash and put it all put it all back together again. Oh, nice, nice. So, but yeah, there are still beads in the trees. <laughs> well, yeah, I've always, I guess, uh, I guess their cleanup crew. I don't know if they have like a full time cleanup crew for celebrations in New Orleans, but. Whoever the cleanup crew is there in New Orleans, they're used to cleaning stuff up with Bourbon Street every Saturday night, I'm mm-hmm. sure, and then Saints games and all those. So, yeah, I'm sure they're used to cleaning it up, and I'm sure that was their Super Bowl, so they prepare all right. year for it. Right. But so, uh, I know this week yeah, we have this- some uh, conversations about a upcoming television show about uh, – Mr. Syed, and that led to us uh, discovering some updates? Yes. Uh, Of course, last night, the first episode of uh, The Case Against Adnan Syed aired on HBO. Um, Amy Bird is directing, Amy Berg is directing it. So I don't have very high hopes for an unbiased reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be skewed with the appearance of lack of bias, but it will be right. more likely than not. Um, but uh, I watched it last night, and uh, nothing groundbreaking. However, um, there was a groundbreaking decision by the Maryland Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in Maryland. Um, okay. The decision, if, if you recall, the trial court, circuit court, ordered that Syed get a new trial. And if I recall correctly, the new trial was based on basically a disclaimer on a fax cover sheet regarding the telephone cell phone location data that said right. incoming calls should not be used because they're not reliable to be used for location or something along those lines. Okay. And so that, that grant of a new trial was appealed to the Court of Special Appeals, which is the intermediate court, Reverse the trial court on the cell phone ground, finding that Syed had waived the right to bring that ineffective assistance claim because he didn't bring it in his first writ. But the Court of Special Appeals granted him a new trial based on his attorney's failure to contact and interview an alibi witness by the name of Asia McLean. Right. So um, the Maryland Court of Appeals, which is, I guess, you know, like the the Maryland Supreme Court. Right, right. That's what I More or less, even though that's not what they call themselves. And the Court of Special Appeals may be like like a criminal appeal. Mm Mm-hmm. I haven't looked at at the flow chart for Maryland's judiciary system. But at any rate, the Maryland Court of Appeal has 
reversed the Court of Special Appeals and remanded Syed's case back to the Court of Special Appeals with directions to reverse the judgment of the super uh, of the Circuit Court of Baltimore City, which granted okay. a new trial. Um, basically, the Court of Appeal found that um, they did find that it was not reasonable for Syed's attorney not to contact Asia McLean. However, they did not find that the failure to contact her and the lack of her testimony at trial was prejudicial to Syed, given all the evidence against him. Against him, right. Presented by, and the fact that even though they they presented as a state saying she died at 236, the mm-hmm. state never really said that. You know, circumstantially, Jay reports getting a call from Syed at 2.36 and then seeing Hayes' body so she was already dead. But they never really did, you know, say it, it was the murder was committed no later than 2.36. Um, okay. Jay could be off on the time he got the call, although I think the cell phone records do support that. And uh, the Court of Appeal also looked at the letters that Asia wrote to Syed and found some troubling statements within those letters that would have impacted her credibility. Think you did this. You need to look me in the eye and tell me you didn't do this. I want to help you account for your unaccounted for time. Okay. And those statements like that, and then in each letter she had different times. She had a 215 to 315 window. She had a 215 to 240 window. Um, You know, she was offering to help him account for six hours of time initially in in the first letter. Uh, And then her testimony at the... uh, the circuit court hearing was not mm-hmm. consistent with what she'd said in the letters or what she'd said in her affidavits. So um, basically that's where we stand. Syed can request a rehearing. Um, it was a four to three decision. Um, four just justices agreed and, and reversed, and three, no, three dissented. Now, oh, interestingly, oh. though, the the most informative of the uh, three opinions generated by the court was actually the one concur- the one concurring justice who wrote separately, because he had an issue with the finding of um, of. About the finding that Gutierrez should have contacted McLean, and that she okay. that she was she didn't act reasonably when she failed to do so, um, and it was very interesting. And it it went into even more about Asia McLean's and what I think what Syed supporters don't understand is that if Gutierrez was going to call Asia McLean 
first of all, they probably had the letters that she wrote to Syed, unless those letters were somehow smuggled into him. Because when you're in jail, even awaiting trial, your mail is not private. Right, absolutely not. Um, Second of all, even if they... Even if they didn't have the letters, if she had put Asia McLean's name on a witness list, the state would have gone and talked to Asia McLean. Right. And bless her little heart, Asia probably would have given them the letters if she had copies of them. Um, they might have gotten copies if Asia said, "I gave them to you know, I gave them, uh, I gave them, you know, that Syed has them." They might have gotten copies that way. Uh, if she had copies and reviewed her copies prior to testifying in any proceeding, they would be entitled to copies of those letters. Right. And, you know, when you read the letters, this a lot of the statements she makes are really damaging because they do give the appearance that she is going to fabricate an alibi for Syed. Okay. So, again, you know, he can request a rehearing. Um, one of the reasons that probably the Maryland Court of Appeals actually heard the case was because the the Court of Special Appeals, instead of just affirming the grounds that um, the circuit court granted the hearing on or the new trial on, they went and reversed that and found their own new grounds. <clears throat> and right. so uh, that's why the Court of Appeals stepped in, but uh, it's unlikely that they'll grant rehearing. He may be able to uh, do a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court because it does deal with ineffective assistance of counsel and claimed Brady violations. Uh, okay. However, he may just want to uh, go to federal court because he still has federal habeas. Right. So um, that's where it stands. So Adnan Syed at this point will not have a new trial. Hmm. Okay. What? uh, I know you mentioned uh, Avery. What's happened there? Yes. Uh, Kathleen Zellner has filed her supplemental post-conviction based on uh, alleged destruction of bones found in the Manitowoc County gravel pit that Mm -hmm. Zellner claims were wrongfully given to the Halbach family during the pending appeal on Avery's uh, post-conviction claim. It may have been right. no, the pending appeal on his direct appeal, because in okay. in Wisconsin he filed he filed the two together and and they were decided together. So um, okay. it, it's kind of it's going to come down to a close issue though because the court of appeal had actually affirmed his conviction and said. He had sought a writ with the state Supreme Court, and that's what was pending at the time the bones were returned to the hall box. 
So okay. Um, and and since it's not an appeal of right to the state supreme court, it's discretionary. He may not have a uh, leg to stand on. Okay. Okay, I can understand that. So, uh, so we'll have to wait and see. And what I predict is going to happen is that the state is going to respond, fill in all the gaps that Ms. Zellner has created by saying uh, this was done and this was done and that was done based on some reports that aren't even really clear of what bones were turned over to the Halbach family. The report she attached, I read it, it deals with an examination of the bones for a decision on what can be released to the Halbach family and what can't be released. Mm -hmm. She's also got another problem in that whether any additional DNA testing could have been done on the bones is going to decide whether they were even exculpatory. Finally, doing DNA testing on the bones and proving that they belong to Teresa Halbach is not going to exonerate Avery because in Brendan Dassey's statement, he says he moved bones to the gravel pit off the Avery property. We know he moved bones into the Dassey burn barrels because some of Teresa's bones and teeth were found in the burn barrels that belonged to Dassey. Right. So um, it's it's only going to corroborate Brendan Dassey's statement that Avery moved bones around. And I don't think she realizes it. She's portraying it as proving she was killed in the gravel pit, not in on Avery's salvage property. But that is not what it would prove because it would corroborate Brendan Dassey's statement. So we'll have to see uh, the state. The state will probably respond within the next 30 to 60 days. Okay. And as I understand it, the court has 90 days to decide um, if she's not going to hold the hearing, if she's going to just do it on the paper. Now, they've also filed a request for the judge to recuse herself, and that is going to uh, – that may delay because it may have to be referred to the chief judge of that particular division circuit, department, whatever they call themselves, to decide whether she has to recuse or not. The grounds for recusal are that she was sitting as the judge on the Hallbach versus Avery wrongful death case. Mm -hmm. But as I understand it, she had very limited, um, very you know, very limited exposure to that case. I believe that was dismissed uh, without a trial or any anything being done. So we'll, we shall see what happens. Okay. Okay. 
so definitely we want to keep our eyes on uh, these cases for sure. Uh, let's go ahead and get into our subject for tonight. Uh, yeah. Definitely one of the most infamous things in the uh, in the history of the United States is the Manson family. People still talk about the guy. Uh, obviously, I believe it was Charlie wrote a book um, when he was in prison. Am I correct? Uh, you know, I'm not really. I know you wrote a book at some point. Uh, it may have been published a few years before he died. He was always trying okay. to get fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, you know, that was his whole goal. But um, I'm not really. I I, I read about it in in some of the materials that I was reading, but. I'm not really, I don't know what the year it was published or any of that information is. But, yeah, he, I think he, it was ghostwritten by somebody for him. And oh. I know I, I also read there was a lot of, um, a lot of controversy because at one time Guns N' Roses used one of Charlie's songs. Oh, wow. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of controversy about that um, mm-hmm. because of the son of Sam laws. So, um, but yeah, that's, you know, he just, he wanted fame and fortune. Absolutely. And he, so, he didn't have the, the, he didn't have the talent or education or, or really, I think uh, motivation to get it by working. Mhm. So uh, he wanted an easy fix. Okay. Okay. So let's start. Obviously, he's got fame because he'll go down as one of the most uh, infamous cult leaders, I guess you could call them, of all time. But Let's talk about some of the reason why he is, you know, infamous in such an aspect, and that's the victims. What do we know about the victims? Uh, I guess let's start with uh, Gary. Gary Allen Henman was born in Colorado on Christmas Eve of 1934. Uh, He graduated uh, college with a degree in chemistry, but then he went on to UCLA, and uh, he'd gotten a master's. And then he was working on his Ph.D. in sociology. Uh, He was also uh, a musician, a very talented one. He worked at a music shop and taught bagpipes, piano, trombone, and drums. Um, He was known as a kind, gentle soul, and he was an intellect. He lived in a house in Topanga Canyon, and his door, he had an open-door policy, anybody that needed a place to stay. They could crash at his house. Um, He also had recently, in 1968, become interested in Nishiren Shoshu Buddhism and was planning a religious pilgrimage to Japan in 1969. Oh, wow. So definitely, you know, 
I mean, as I'm sitting there listening to you describe this guy, I mean, is it just me or do these guys never go after, you know, somebody that's not well-respected or somebody that's well-liked? They always tend to go after the good people. Yeah, I I think that that probably, with, with a few exceptions, probably is the case. I think one of the things, though, you have to remember Manson was always looking for what he could get from someone, whether it was manipulating them to do a crime for him. I mean, when you joined the family, you turned all of your worldly possessions and all of your money and everything over to Charlie. And nobody ever questioned Charlie about what happened or where things were or what was done with them. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about Charlie. Okay. So tell us about Stephen. Stephen Parent, his name was Stephen Earl Parent. He was also from California. He was born on February 12, 1959. He grew up in the Los Angeles suburb of El Monte. Uh, His father was a construction superintendent, and his mother... And was a, I guess a house a housewife homemaker. Uh, he had a younger sister Janet and two younger brothers Greg and Dale. He was six feet tall, carrot top, uh, redhead. <laughs> he went to a Royal High School on North Cedar, and he'd actually just graduated from high school when he was killed. Um, he had. He'd gotten into folk music and playing guitar, and he committed a few petty crimes because he was very electronically talented. He could take something apart and put it back together perfectly, and he was fascinated by electronics. And, you know, probably a construction superintendent's father. They were probably middle class. Um, There probably wasn't a lot of money to go around, so he did get he did have a little little petty run in with the law. But he also worked two jobs. He worked full time as a delivery boy for a plumbing company, uh, in mm-hmm. Rosemead during the day and in the evenings he worked as a salesman at Jonas Miller Stereo, which is on Wilshire Boulevard. Was on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh okay. his connection in 1969, in July, he met William Garretson, who was a caretaker at the Cielo Drive House, hitchhiking in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, but for that meeting with William Garretson, he might never have been killed because he'd gone to visit Garretson that night. Oh, man. Yeah. That's terrible. And uh, so, and Garrettson, Garrettson was in that guest house. He just, you know, he stayed quiet and and kept his head down. And they didn't know it because luckily none of them ever thought to go to that guest house. Right. On the property, or, or there would have been, you know, a sixth victim, or a seventh victim, if you count Sharon Tate's unborn son. Right. Right. Very good point. Very good point. So, uh, 
what about uh, Mr. Sebring? What do we know about uh, Mr. Jay Sebring? Jay Sebring was born in Alabama. He was a Southern boy on October 10th, 1933. Uh, he was actually born Thomas John Comer, K-U-M-M-E-R. He was the fourth child of an accountant and a homemaker. Uh, he had a brother and two sisters, and he had a typical middle-class life. They apparently relocated to Michigan, and he grew up in a suburb outside of Detroit. He joined the Navy after high school and went overseas to serve in the Korean War. And during his years in the service, he learned to cut hair. Right. After he got out of the Navy, after four years, he moved to Los Angeles, changed his name to Jay Sebring, um, which was apparently the name of a, fam- a famous car race in Florida. Uh, he developed a, he had developed a unique style of cutting hair, and he actually helped launch the male hair care revolution. Oh wow! And in okay. fact, Jay Sebring is one of the my dad like fought against the Jay Sebring salon experience for men, he went to a barber. Mm-hmm. He never went to so a hairstylist. So Mr. Sebring was uh, one of the more famous victims. Yes, yes. He was, I mean, he, he, had, he had started working on Hollywood with movies. Uh, he cut Kurt Douglas's hair. Uh, oh, wow. He cut Steve McQueen, Warren Beatty, Paul Newman. Uh, Kirk Douglas actually got him to design the haircut for the slaves in the movie Spartacus. Oh, wow. Wow. And, so, yeah, uh, he, he, he was, I mean, he was, he had multiple salons. He was about to start franchising. Uh, you know, he was just about to, to break, uh, you know, break out in business. And um, he also was remembered as a kind, thoughtful man, and he had sophisticated taste. Um, so uh, another thing, Jay Sebring was taught martial arts by Bruce Lee. Oh, wow. And it was Sebring who passed a videotape of Lee on to William Dozier, who was a client and friend, and Mr. Dozier cast Lee in Batman, and then in the part of Cato on Green Hornet. Oh, wow, that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sebring also had a prior relationship with Sharon Tate. They met at a party thrown by the owner of Whiskey Go-Go, and they became inseparable. They lived together for a few years, uh, but it didn't work out. Uh, She went to London to make a movie, and there she met Roman Polanski, and their relationship ended. But they remained good friends, and he actually insisted on meeting Polanski and approved of him. And then the three of them were friends. So... uh, but yeah, he was he was a lot more. I mean, business was booming. 
Uh, he had successful salons in West Hollywood, Palm Springs, and Las Vegas. But he got an acting role. He was in a cameo in a, Bat- in a Batman episode. Uh, and then, like I said, he was about to start franchising. Right. So he he was about to to break records. And that was unusual for men. You know, men were not, yeah, men were not, uh, men went to barber. They used, you know, head and shoulder shampoo. So, um, all right. So, and and I'm going to get a, yeah, Abigail Ann Folger was also born in California uh, on August 11th, 1943, her father was Peter Folger, the chairman of the Folger Coffee Company. Her mother oh, wow. was Inez Mejia, uh, and her parents divorced when Abigail was young. She grew up in San Francisco, and she displayed an interest in art and actually spent a lot of her free time painting. She was also musically inclined and was a talented pianist. She attended the Catalina School for Girls in Carmel and then went to Radcliffe College, where she graduated in honors. And then she went to Harvard for graduate work and received a degree in art history. Um, Uh She took a job at the University of California Art Museum in Berkeley, California, for a time, and then relocated to New York City. She started working for a magazine publisher and then left for a job at the Gotham Bookmark, Bookmart, which is on 47th Street. Um, there right. she met Polish author Jer- Jerzy Kaczynski, who introduced her to Wojtek Frykowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Frykowski could not speak English, or could hardly speak English, he and Abigail were both fluent in French, so they were able to communicate in that way. Uh, she gave him tours of the city, and a romance developed, and they shared an apartment for a few months in New York before they decided to move to California during the summer of 1968. Um, once in Los Angeles, Abigail started working for the Los Angeles County Welfare Department as a social worker. Uh, she was doing volunteer work with children. Um, it was very hard on her, and it it's a very difficult, you know, profession to, or, or even just volunteering is very difficult. Uh, and she was also right. active in civil rights causes. Uh, of course, you know, she was an heir to the Folger Coffee Company, so she was uh, she was very wealthy. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm noticing, uh, I'm noticing quite a trend here. Yeah. Uh, in the spring of 1969, while Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski went to Europe to work on different film projects, uh, Roman wanted somebody to be at the Cielo Drive house, so he asked Wojtek and uh, Abigail to house it. So they moved into the Cielo Drive house to house it while Roman and Sharon were gone. Right. 
So, uh, all right. Wojtek Frakowski. Um, and this he is, and Roman Pol- that I'm sorry, I didn't that, that was Abigail's. Uh, That's okay. Frykowski, that was you just mentioned to him with uh, Folger, right? He was yes, he was with Folger. Okay. Um, they I just wanted they to were ha- they were having they were having some issues around this time, and had they not been killed, likely would have gone their separate ways at some point. But uh, okay. Wojtek Frykowski was born in Lotz, Poland, on December 22, 1936. His father, Jan, was a textile printer who had to fight with authorities to remain in control of his business when after World War II started. Wojtek Frykowski and Roman Polanski both grew up in Nazi-occupied Poland. During World War II. Um, Polanski had been born in France. They moved to Krakow. Right right after they moved to Krakow is when the Nazis invaded Poland. And I think it was 1939. Okay. Um, Polanski's parents, I believe, went to concentration camp were sent to a concentration camp. They may have been Jewish, or they may have been intellectual, or they may have been political, uh, but his father, I believe, died in the concentration camp. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, And Frykowski had met Roman Polanski at a school dance, Polanski was working the door as security and would not let Frykowski in because he was a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. Later on, uh, they, they almost got into a fistfight over that. And then weeks later, they met again at a local bar, had a drink, and became friends. Um, Frykowski <laughs> financed and produced an early short film Roman Polanski made. But he wasn't credited because he wasn't a member of the film community. Um, he was also okay. an, exception, an exceptional swimmer and was hired as a lifeguard on the set of uh, Polanski's first full-length motion picture, Knife in the Water, which is a Polish movie. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he and, he and Frykowski were, Roman Polanski and Frykowski were great friends. Roman Polanski said Wojtek was good-natured, soft-hearted to the point of sentimentality, and utterly loyal beneath his tough exterior. Oh man! And um, Frykowski, Frykowski left I'm Poland sorry. in 1967, uh-huh. and he spent some time in Paris, and then moved to the United States. Uh, and that was where he met in New York. He met Abigail Folger. Okay. Um, okay. And so, so, I would just like to say this poor guy survived Nazi Nazi Poland to just to unfortunately get taken by the Manson family. <sighs> Ironically, Charlie Manson idolized Hitler. Oh, uh, okay. So that's probably so that's some irony there. No, 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 no. I we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about the murders. 
Okay. Um, no, Charlie Manson. I think that is the really the sickest thing about Manson is that aside from Gary Hinman, he did not know any of the other victims. Oh. He okay. didn't know. He didn't know the Labiancas. He didn't know Sharon Tate. He didn't know Roman Polanski, Wojtek Frakowski, Abigail Folger, Steve Perry. He didn't know any of these people. They were symbols oh, wow. to him. They weren't human. Ah, uh, I got you. So, obviously, and you mentioned her a second ago in talking about the uh, victims, but probably the most famous victim is uh, Sharon Tate. What do we mm-hmm. uh, know about Sharon prior to her untimely demise? Sharon Marie Tate was born in Dallas, Texas on January 24th, 1943. Uh, her parents had married the previous year. Her mother was Doris Gwendolyn Willett, and her father was Paul James Tate. Uh, Doris was a, was a Southern belle, gracious and charming, and Paul was filled with patriotism and had joined the ranks of the U.S. Army. He worked uh-huh. his way up in the Army to colonel, and at one time was also in military intelligence. Um, growing up, she was an Army brat. They moved from different military bases in the U.S. and Europe. And uh, Tate Sharon was eventually joined in the family by two younger sisters, Deborah and Patty. Sharon had begun modeling as a teenager, and she competed in beauty pageants. And winning the beauty pageants wasn't a surprise because in uh, at six months old, in 1943, she had been crowned Miss Tiny Tot of Dallas. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and if you look at her pictures, I mean, she was just, she was just such a beautiful woman. Um, not only physically, but, you know, her her spirit, I guess you could say. You know, when you listen to her talk right. and, and the way she laughed and you can see in, in some of her, uh, in some of her acting roles, I mean, she had a presence. Uh, about her. Uh, in 1960, uh, the family was at the uh, Verona, Italy Army Base, and Sharon was attending high school at the Vincenza American High School. She was an active student. She was a member of the library club, the student council, the cheerleading squad, and she became the school's very first homecoming queen. Oh, wow. Um, during the time that they were in Verona, uh, Adventures of a Young Man with Paul Newman, Richard Boehmer, and Susan Strasberg was being filmed nearby. So Sharon and a group of friends went to the set, and she caught Richard Boehmer's eye. He invited her to lunch and gave her his agent's number, uh, and... She contacted the agent, and she got work in the, as an extra in the movie Barabbas, as well as on a Pat Boone okay. special. Sharon Tate also, uh, I don't, you probably don't even know the Beverly Hillbillies. She was Mr. Drysdale's secretary. 
okay, on a couple of episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies. She had a black wig on. Her agent was trying to launch her film career. She had signed a contract with Filmways. Uh This was actually Filmways' CEO. He wanted to launch a movie career for her. And back in those days, if you appeared on TV, you were shooting yourself in the foot if you wanted to be in movies. Oh, wow, really? Because there really was not much, there wasn't a lot of crossover. It could be done, but a lot of times you saw like Cesar Romero, who was on Batman a lot and who had a recurring role as a Joker. He had been a big movie actor in the 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, but the parts were drying up. Okay. So he went to TV. So you kind of, TV was where you went when you were washed up. It's not that way now. I mean, I guess that makes sense. I guess that makes sense. That, really, even today, you don't see too many TV stars become movie stars. Right. And TV in those days paid next to nothing. Um, okay. You know, because advertising, I don't think they had learned, you know, the the broadcast TV industry was still learning how to maximize their profit. Right. And it wasn't until later in the 70s that they started being able to make money and then television shows and television producers and uh, actors and actresses could start making money as well. Mm-hmm. So um, Sharon... Uh, yeah. Uh, Sharon had met Jay Sebring at a Hollywood party in 1964, and they started their relationship. She had another relationship with a French actor, Philippe Fourquet, but um, that was not a a healthy relationship, and um, it did not last. Um, so she met Roman Polanski when she was in working on a spoof titled The Fearless Vampire Killers. Sometimes called Pardon Me, But Your Teeth Are In My Neck or Dance of the Vampires. Oh, wow. Um, She uh, met Polanski initially. From what I've read, the various sources, they initially did not get along. But then they fell madly in love. And even though Roman Polanski remained a womanizer, she hoped that he would want to change. She didn't want to change him. So she just, you know, didn't like it, but didn't worry about it, hoping that one day he would be able to change. In early 1969, they got married in... um, when did they get married? Got it written down here. They got married January twentieth, nineteen sixty-eight, in London. Uh, they had a reception at the Playboy Club, and then honeymooned in the Alps. Okay. Sharon got out of her Filmways contract and was signed to star in uh, 
by Columbia Pictures in The Wrecking Crew, which was the last film in the Matt Helm series with Dean Martin. And um, she got to, that was when she also, she learned some martial arts training from Bruce Lee because she had to do a few fight scenes in that movie. Uh, The film wasn't a critical or financial success, but she did enjoy it. And she did get some favorable favorable press from the media. She played a a clumsy agent sent to assist Helms. I've I've seen one of the Matt Helms movies, but it wasn't that one. Okay. Um, And at one point, she and Roman had been living in the... uh, Patty Duke's house on Summit Ridge, but in early 1969, uh-huh. Patty Duke needed the house. She was going to move back in, so Sharon began searching around L.A. and finally found a house on Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon. Uh, she also found out she was pregnant at this time, and she knew that Roman, because of his traumatic childhood in Nazi-occupied Poland uh, was not to bring a child into this world. Right. And so she did not tell him that she was pregnant. He eventually, when he did find out that she was pregnant, he wasn't happy, but eventually he became excited about being a father. And nobody can blame him for being, you know, for being... Yeah, absolutely. uh, With that... Yeah. And, uh, of course, unfortunately, her unborn son, Paul Richard Polanski, did not survive after his mother was killed. Yeah, I was about to say, needless to say, there was good reason, unfortunately, that would play through. Right. Um, now, you know, it's it's unfortunate, it, and I'll probably get into this a little bit more. The way that house was situated, even with all the noise and screaming that went on during the murders, in the canyon, you can't tell where any of that's coming from. Mm-hmm. And so people might have heard noise but not really known what it was or where it was coming from to even call. Um, but at at the trial, the medical examiner said the baby survived probably 15 minutes after after Sharon Tate no. passed away, and then you know that was that was uh, and that was the one yeah. thing she wanted to do was be a mom, and she was looking forward to the baby's birth, getting ready for the baby's birth. And taking care of herself and and doing everything right, and um, she was due. I mean, she was eight and a half months pregnant, so she was due uh-huh. within two to four weeks. Right. Right. Oh, you definitely hate that, especially you know, knowing Roman's hesitations and why he had those. Re- hesitations with this stuff, you know, and then for 
it to play out the way it did, you know, you that's just gut wrenching. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. Um So what do we know about Lena Leno Ladiak? Leno. I think it's Leno. Leno. He was born uh in Los Angeles, California. On August 6, 1925, his full name was Pasqualino Antonio LaBianca. He was named Pasqualino after his grandfather, and then Antonio was his father's name. In Italian tradition, or their particular Italian tradition, was the grandfather and the uh, father's name. Now... Apparently, I have some other Italian friends, and they said the only exception would be if the grandfather died a year before the baby was born, you don't name a child after somebody who's only been dead a year. Okay. Yeah, don't do that. But uh, but his grandfather was probably alive and, and kicking. Um, mm-hmm. His father, Antonio, had a growing grocery business with Gateway Ranch Markets and State Wholesale Grocery Company. Uh, And that was like probably one of the biggest grocers and wholesale grocery store supplier in Southern California. Right. Uh, His mom, Karina, stayed home and took care of Lino and his older sisters, Emma and Stella. In high school, he was an exceptional student and he skipped a grade. And this is an irony. When I saw this, when I was reading, I nearly fell out of my chair. He was, he went to a high school called Benjamin Franklin High School. Mm-hmm. My high school was Benjamin Franklin High School in Louisiana. So when I saw that, I was like, wow. oh, my God. Um, he was on the track team, and his nickname was Flash. Uh, he also competed in shot. Um, mm-hmm. He changed the spelling of his name. It was spelled L-I-N-O, but it was always mispronounced, so he changed the I to an E so that people would pronounce it correctly. Oh, wow. Unlike okay. my sister, who and just started that. accepting everybody's pronunciation of Leah. <laughs> right. uh, he also he grew up working in the gateway market. And in his free time, he frequented the Hollywood Roller Dome, Sycamore Drive-In, and Pasadena Civic Auditorium. Um, His first marriage was to a woman named Alice Schofield. Uh, Schofield said Lino was quiet, shy, and equipped with a subtle humor and had a great capacity for getting himself innocently into all kinds of trouble. (laughs) Um, in 1940, his father bought a home on Waverly Drive in Los Feliz, which is a district in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. Lino was temporarily transferred to a different school, but he quickly forged his father's name on a change of address form so that he could go back, could go back to Benjamin Franklin. In nice. 1942, in the fall, he went to work at the State Wholesale Company and started at Los Angeles City College studying business administration. 
After a semester, he transferred to the University of Southern California and went back to work at Gateway. And, you know, at this time, he's just out of high school. Um, right. In November 1933, he was inducted into the Army and was sent to Fort MacArthur in San Pedro. Eventually, he went on to become a member of the 524th Military Police Battalion. The following month, he and Alice got engaged, and then they were married in March of 1944. They lived in Salinas, California, and then Gainesville, Texas. In September of 1944, Lino went off to Europe. He served in World War II and for 18 months was on duty in England, France, Holland, and Germany. Mm-hmm. At that time, Alice lived with his parents on Waverly Drive, and um, he wrote home to his wife a lot. He finally returned home in March of 1946, and he had become he risen to the rank of technical sergeant. He immediately joined the Army Reserve and was, I guess, promoted to sergeant first class. Um, Back home, he and Alice were starting his family. Uh, His parents were the typical Italian parents, where you basically live with them forever and ever and ever. Um, They they had him in an apartment with Alice behind the Waverly Drive house. As their family grew and needed more space, Alice wanted their own home, and they did eventually move. Uh, they also went through some difficulties and separated briefly. Um, Their daughter, Corinna Jane, was born in 1948, and Lino, in 1950, was elected to the board of directors and named vice president of Gateway Markets and State Wholesale. And in December of 1950, their son, Anthony Carl, was born. Um, so they, you know, they were starting their family. They did grow apart and separated in January of 1955. They moved out of the Waverly Drive house, which I believe they had bought from his mom, or they had moved back in to the house. And... Um, they found apartments in Las Feliz, had another daughter, Louise LaBianca, and then divorced, I think it was in 1958, somewhere around there. Uh, in 1959, Lino met Rosemary Struthers. They fell in love uh-huh. and were married a year later in Las Vegas. Uh, Rosemary had a, a son by her first marriage. Uh, Lino was tired of the burden of Gateway and State Wholesale. He sold the business, mm-hmm. state, the State Wholesale business, to focus on Gateway. He also wanted to start breeding and racing thoroughbred horses, and so he started living that dream. Um, he was also uh, looking to get to sell Gateway. Rosemary had started her own business, and she was very successful. Um, They moved 
they bought a house that had been owned by Walt Disney, but oh, wow. it was needed a lot of work and it was more trouble than it was worth. So in 1968, they sold it and bought the Waverly House from his mother and moved into the Waverly House where they uh, raised Lino's children as well as uh, Rosemary's son, Frank. Okay. And so, finally, um, before we go to commercial, let's uh, talk about Donald. Yeah, Donald Shorty Shay. Oh well, Rosemary. We gotta we gotta do Rosemary real quick. Oh, oh um, I apologize. Rose, that's okay. Rosemary LaBianca was born in Mexico on Dece- December fifteenth, nineteen twenty-five. Her parents were reported to be Americans, but they either abandoned her or died prematurely, and she grew up in an orphanage in Arizona until she was adopted at the age of twelve by a family named Harmon. In the late 40s, she met Frank Struthers while working as a car hop at the Brown Derby Drive-In. Um, she got mar- they got married, and she had two children, Suzanne and Frank Jr. Suzanne was born in 48, and Frank Jr. was born in 55. Uh, she divorced Frank in 58, met Lino LaBianca. She was working at the Los Feliz Inn as a waitress. She was a working... She was a working class girl. Um, they fell in love and, and married in Vegas. She got along well with Lino's children. Uh, her children and Lino's children were the same, roughly the same age. She had a sophisticated style and a fashion sense that was a big hit with, with the daughter Karina. And uh, even Lino's first wife, Alice, said, Rosemary showed Corey new ways to wear her hair and spent time doing things with her that I didn't have time for. Um, right. In 1957, Rosemary converted an old Gateway Markets truck into a mobile dress shop under the name Boutique Carriage. It was a success, business grew, and Rosemary opened a dress shop gift store in a Gateway shopping uh, plaza on Figueroa with a business partner. Um, right. <clears throat> and in 1968 is when they moved into the Waverly Drive house. And okay. um, so interestingly, though, one thing I want to talk about, apparently in the spring of 1969, Rosemary wrote letters to... Lino's daughter, Corey, long ago, we used to write letters to each other. There were no texts. What? Apparently, for several weeks, things were being moved around in their house. Okay. And it seemed like somebody had been in the house and things were going missing. So that that's something interesting will come into play later. Okay. All right. Um, Donald Shorty Shea was born in, I think it was Massachusetts. Uh, interestingly, all these men are about, um, are about Manson's age. 
so I'm a little bit older. Okay. Uh, Donald Jerome Shea was born in Massachusetts on September 18, 1933. He moved to mm-hmm. California wanting to pursue a career in acting. He was he was over six feet tall, but his nickname was Shorty. It's one of those okay. ironic nicknames. Uh, he what? ended up spending most of his time at Spawn's Movie Ranch, which uh, okay. a lot of shows were, were filmed there. There were some episodes of Bonanza film there, um, a couple of other shows that even I didn't know, I'd never heard of, uh, old westerns during the 50s, probably. Um, Shay was hired to help with the horses at the ranch, and he continued working as a stuntman in, uh, in Hollywood. He had several friends who let him use their phone numbers as an answering service. So when acting opportunities came up, he'd leave the ranch and then return after filming was complete. He was big and stocky, and he worked long days. He got along well with all the other ranch hands and always looked after George Bond's interests. Initially, he didn't mind Charlie and the girls, but as time went by, he grew to dislike Charlie immensely. And really, that was a pretty common thing in Charlie's life. Right. Um, I, I, think mean, people, I think people liked him in small doses. But like guests and fish, after a few days, he started to stink. Once he he started talking about, you know, the whole world domination thing, I'm sure it probably wore thin. Well, I think what more, I think what more got to Shorty was that when Charlie came, Squeaky Fromm and Patricia Krenwinkel became, quote, caretakers of George Spahn. Mm -hmm. And I think that Shorty saw Charlie taking advantage of George Spahn. He was in his 80s. He was blind. I mean, he was, he was you know, not mobile anymore. And so, uh, you know, he get, Charlie gives him two young, nubile women um, to do whatever he wants with. And I think Shorty saw that that was not going to end well. Right, right. So then he he started trying to get, I think he tried to get uh, Spawn to tell them to leave. Okay. So uh, that's, (coughs) sorry, those are the victims. Okay. And we'll we'll take a quick break and I'm going to go rest my, my throat because I've been talking for (laughs) (laughs) well let's go ahead and take a break we'll be right back with more clear and convincing when I get to the bottom I go back to the top of the slide
you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories, then check out the guys at Sub On Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub On Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub On Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Diet Coke. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's always the best. It's always the best uh, thing. I think we, I'm starting to look at this uh, outline we have here for tonight, though, and I'm starting to think we were a little ambitious thinking we could only break this into two parts. I know. I'm I'm starting to see that, too. Um, I think that's, I think what we may do is uh, go through the family and uh-huh. some of the pre-1969 uh, or pre-August, July 1969 crimes. Okay. And then look at those next week and then do the trials and the post-conviction. Because you're right, I think going okay. through the psychology, and we rarely do it with other cases because there isn't a lot about the victims. Mhm. But in this case because it is so uh it's it, so resonated right. for it this year is the 50th anniversary. No, I didn't need to know that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Kind of interesting that I decided to do it then. Wow. Good job, me. Well, he's... Right on the <laughs> yes, good job, Michael. <laughs> so, and you know, if we want to do in August, uh, we can maybe do, and we could probably do another show because there's so much material out there. Oh, absolutely. I'm starting to see um, that. You know, obviously, you know, one of the most, like I said, infamous crime sprees in the history of, you know, the country. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I mean, I grew up, I was, I was only four, well, I was five in 69, 70. And I mean, I remember that is the point when people started locking their doors in a lot of places. Because when it happened in Los Angeles, it could happen anywhere. Well, I mean, am I crazy or was Charlie Manson really the start of the boogeyman phenomenon too, wasn't he? Or am I crazy on that? Well, I think that he probably, he was the boogeyman of the 60s, 70s era. But, I mean, there was a boogeyman in New Orleans in the 1920s, the Axeman. Okay. Uh, there was a boogeyman in in the early part of the 20th century in Velasca, Iowa. Okay. Uh, the Clutter Murders were boogeymen in uh, Kansas or Nebraska. Well, and of course, everybody everybody knows that famous line from Paradise Lost where. Damien said he wanted to be known as the uh, what? The West Memphis West Boogeyman. West Memphis Boogeyman. Yeah. So, so definitely uh, something interesting. <clears throat> yeah. So on to Charlie. And frankly, he could be a show okay. all to himself because there's right. so much material right. out there. Um, Absolutely. Charles Manson was born No Name Maddox In Cincinnati, Ohio On November 11th, 1934 Some sources put his date of birth On the 12th But somewhere around there November 1934 His mother was a 16-year-old runaway Named Kathleen Maddox And as established by paternity uh, proceedings in, I believe, Ohio. Uh, his father was a man by the name of Colonel Scott. Kathleen believed he was a colonel in the army, but his name was just Colonel. That was his given first name. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, he took. He was eventually named Charles Mills Maddox, and then he took the name Manson the surname Manson, from a man his mother married briefly by the name of William Manson. Uh, When he was five or six, his mother was convicted of strong-armed robbery. Her brother talked her into trying to rob some guy. They were caught and convicted, and she went to Moundsville State Prison, which, if you follow Paranormal, that's supposed to be one of the most haunted prisons I think it's in West Virginia. Oh. Uh, so, so, yeah. She, so she, she was, was there in the 1940s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, something that I noticed, he was bounced around. Initially, he went to live with his grandparents, who were very strict religious people. And with his grandparents, he actually had a shot at a normal life because I read that they, you know, they, they doted on him 
They gave him whatever he wanted. But something about him, that wasn't enough. And he was acting up and causing trouble. Frankly, I think that he was just born bad. Right. Um, And he ended up being, you know, passed around to aunts and uncles. Uh, He apparently had an uncle who was uh, a moonshiner, and he was about to get arrested, so he blew himself up. Um, And you have to kind of take some of it with a grain of salt because Charlie was not above misrepresenting his background in order to gain sympathy or make excuses for why he was the way he was. Right. Right. Um, And I think even though as a kid, you know, I think he had that grounding of right and wrong from his grandparents, but he didn't care. If he wanted to do it, he was going to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, he ended up uh, starting to get in trouble. And after his mother was released from prison, he did live with her briefly, but he was given up to the state after her boyfriend said he didn't like having Charlie around. Uh, He sent him to the Shebo Boys Home for or Jibo Home for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, he ran away, was arrested on a stolen bike, went to Boys Town. He ran away after four days there, stole a car, committed on robberies, and sent to the Indiana School for Boys in Plainfield, Indiana. Uh, he claims that he was uh, sexually abused while in Plainfield. Uh, He escaped again, stole a car, and went to California. Unfortunately, he was arrested in Utah, and because he'd taken a stolen car across state lines, he was uh, in violation of the Dyer Act. So he spent three years, the next three years in four facilities, the National Training School for Boys uh, in D.C., and then the National Bridge, Natural Bridge Honor Camp, Federal Reformatory at Petersburg, and Federal Reformatory at Chillicothe, Ohio. And this is where he allegedly became buddies with Ed, Edward Edwards, who I'm still working on John Cameron's book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's, you know, like it's, it's on the to-do list. They seem like Pardon? they would be besties. They do seem like they'd be besties. Well, you know, when while I was researching Manson, I think there are some holes. I don't know that the two of them were actually in Chillicothe at the same time. Okay. It all matched so perfectly. I honestly... To be honest, though, and, it seemed like they was, their personalities would match up if they were. And um, another thing that is is interesting is, um, you know, Manson spent time, the area of Ohio, I think that he's from, is in that little spot where you're near Kentucky, 
West Virginia. You know, there's a little there's a little section there. Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana. Uh-huh. That circle. And I, I think he spent more time like in Kentucky. We know Charlie Manson was a racist. Right. He would not allow non European people into his family in any capacity. Okay. I mean, even when he associated with biker gangs, they were white biker gangs. Um, so he was he was notoriously racist. Uh, so then in 55, he married a 17-year-old girl named Rosalie. They went to California in a stolen car, another violation of the Dyer Act. So uh, Charlie was arrested in Los Angeles three months after that. Uh, Rosalie was pregnant at the time, and Charlie got probation, which he soon broke. And went mm-hmm. to Terminal Island Prison for three years. Uh, his son Charles Manson Jr. was born shortly after that, and Rosalie left town with a truck driver, and Charlie never saw Rosalie or his son again. He was released from Terminal Island in 1958. Started pimping girls in Hollywood. In '59, he was attempt- arrested for attempting to cash a stolen $37 and 50 cent check. He'd once again broken federal law, so he uh, was on the run. He married a girl named Leona and went to Texas. And uh-huh. on June 1st, 1960, he was arrested in Laredo, Texas, for violating the Mann Act, crossing state lines for the purpose of prostitution, and was ordered to serve the 10-year suspended sentence he'd gotten for cashing the stolen check. Okay. He went to McNeil Real Island. Quick. Yeah. Real quick, Lisa, I gotta ask, has anybody ever located Charlie Manson Jr.? <clears throat> in the research that I did, it's believed that he committed suicide in the 1990s. Okay. Um. He had another son, Charles Luther, with Leona, uh, but I don't know that there are any uh, there's any information on his whereabouts. Uh, he would have been born around 1960, 1961. Well, I was just wondering because I mean, obviously, I'm sure this dude knew who his dad was. Unless, you know, his mom didn't tell him. I was wondering, you know, how he turned out, if he had any pre, you know, they say some of that stuff can be genetic if you're, if you have something wrong in your brain. I was just kind of wondering if anybody knew what happened with him. Yeah, I, I don't know that Charles Manson Jr., who was born, I think, around, sometime in 1955, or Charles. Luther Manson, I don't think any of them have ever come forward and claimed to be Manson's son. Okay. Whether they knew or not, I don't know. Uh, but they, I mean, certainly neither one of them has ever done anything. 
Okay. So, um, and, you know, the, the, one of the big things with Charles Manson was always the, the question of nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. Uh, because some people think, oh, he had such a hard life, you know, when he was a kid. And so that's why he became what he became. But like I said, he, his grandparents from multiple sources that I read doted on him. And the right. reason they couldn't handle him was because he kept getting into trouble. Right, absolutely. And not being led astray by somebody older or more charismatic, but, you know, just him doing Being it on crazy. his own. Being Charlie. No, not crazy. That's the thing. I I firmly believe Manson was a sociopath uh-huh. from a very early age. Okay. He knew the difference between between right and wrong, but he didn't care. Okay. So, um, so, I could see that. Yeah. So uh, he went to McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington State, and it was there that he learned how to play the guitar and became interested in Scientology. Mm-hmm. Um, then in 1966, he went to Terminal Island and was paroled on March 21st, 1967. Now, this is interesting. He asked that the authorities let him stay in jail. By that time, he'd spent most of his, more than half his life in prison. Uh, right. But the warden said he had to leave because he'd served a sentence. Right. Um, yeah. We're not going to keep you. So, um, now, you know, what's interesting, though, is if he really wanted to stay in prison, why not commit some infraction in prison? Right, true. I mean, as a teenager, he sexually assaulted a boy and put a razor against a kid's throat while he did it, while he was one of the boys' homes. Hmm, okay. And a psychologist had, you know, several psychologists have evaluated him over the years. And... um uh, found that he, you know, was pretty troubled, but also manipulative and uh, aggressive and violent. So, you know, why say, oh, please let me stay in prison? Why not just commit a crime that's going to keep you in prison? Very true. Good point. You know, he was so hell so, And sometimes that's the, that was the other thing about Manson is sometimes. He didn't practice what he preached, and and what he said didn't make sense based on what he did. Right. Or didn't do. Right, yeah. I mean, why Uh, not just, if you're so hell-bent on murdering folks, why not just go ahead and take some of the bad folks out in prison, and then you get your way to being locked in prison? I mean, yeah, he, he, he... could have killed another inmate. Uh, of course, he would have picked, and that's another thing too with Manson. He was five feet two inches tall. He really was not that tough, and he knew it. Right. 
And we'll get into that a little bit later. So um, if he had chosen to kill somebody, it would have been like the weakest person in the prison. And maybe at that time there wasn't anybody weaker than Charlie. Right, right. Um, But after his release, he moved to the Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco. And with his guitar and philosophies, he found a place where he finally fit in. Um, And the Manson family was born in San Francisco when he met Mary Bruner, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, He and Mary began traveling around California. And actually, Charlie also was not a liberated man. He did not feel that women served any purpose other than sex, having babies, taking care of babies, taking care of him. That was it. So he also started gathering the male lieutenants. Uh, around him and surrounded himself with them. Um, They eventually made contact, he eventually made contacts with people at Universal Studios and then started bumping elbows with the rich and famous in the Hollywood Hills. Um, In the summer of 1968, he met Brian Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, when he okay. picked up when Wilson picked up uh, Ella Jo Bailey and Patricia Quenwinkle hitchhiking. Now this is in, this is another interesting thing. Dennis Wilson loved women, so he brings Ella Jo and Patricia back to his wonderful Hollywood Beverly Hills Bel Air mansion, wherever he lived, and um, tells them, you know, he's got to go to a recording studio, but They're welcome to make themselves at home. Well, they call Charlie, and pretty soon, Charlie and a bunch of other people are living at Dennis Wilson's house. Okay. Uh, Now, initially, this is another case where, in in short doses, Charlie was cool. Dennis Wilson called him the magician, or the war, or the yeah, the magician. I think it was. Mm Uh, and, you know, Charlie could spout Bible verses, and um, he claimed to be well-read, but, you know, I've listened to him speak about some things and speak about what things mean, and as an English major, I often think he has no clue. You know, he either didn't read the book or didn't listen to the words or have some comprehension right. issues. Because, like, you know, the meaning he attributed, attributed to Beatles lyrics was not what I would attribute to them listening to them or looking at them on the page. It's what he wanted them to mean. Right, absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> Wilson, he called – okay, Wilson called him the wizard. I knew it was something magical with a K. Um, And he did let Charlie and the family stay at his house and drive his cars and take his clothes. Manson to his record label, 
which fell through. But through Wilson, Charlie met Greg Jacobson and Terry Melcher. And Terry Melcher was the son of Doris Day and was, at that time, a hot record producer. Uh, he's probably, you know, next to Phil, one of the greater right. producers of that era. Era. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And who was just flat out not interested in Manson's music. So, um, then that is where the attack on Cielo Drive comes because at the time, Melcher was living in the house at 150 Cielo Drive. Okay. Okay. Um, so that is that's pretty um that's kind of Manson's makeup. But you know, he was a con man. Right. And he was probably paranoid schizophrenic on top of everything else. And drug use did not help. And I think that was right. the primary downfall for uh all of his followers is that he Charlie used drug use to reel them in and maintain control mm-hmm. of them because you know like they'd have the acid parties, but take less acid than he gave everyone else, and he would dose the acid um they would have orgies, and one of the things that I read that really is why I say he was not a liberated man as much as he wanted to pretend that he was better than society and, you know, better than everybody else. Um, The women could not say no. If he, if he brought bikers in to spawn ranch, because he wants to get them in the family to be his protection. And the bikers wanted to have sex with the women if the women didn't want to have sex, that was too bad. Well, damn, yeah. That, they were going to have to. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that was, women could not say no. And there was an interview on one of the, uh, one of the news program, news shows. Uh, Mike Love, who was in the Beach Boys, he had been attending a party at Dennis's house while Charlie and the family were living there. And when the orgy started, he was, that was not his bag. I I believe he was a Mormon. And so he left and he went to go take a shower and he was probably going to go turn in, go to bed. He wasn't judging what they were doing, but that just wasn't for him. And Charles Manson followed him to the bathroom and basically came to him while he's in the shower and says, you don't do that. Nobody gets up and leaves. Um, okay. So, so you know, he was, it was about control. And several of the former uh, girls who didn't participate in any of the murders, 
said it was about control, and you didn't question him, even if you knew what he was saying was wrong. You did not question him. You just did what he told you to do. Right. So pretty much uh, compliance was mandatory. Correct. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, I definitely don't want to spend the whole hour on Charlie. So let's talk a little bit uh, about (laughs) Bruce Davis was born in Monroe, Louisiana on October 5th, 1942. He grew up in Mobile, Alabama. After high school, he attended college for two years in Tennessee, but then dropped out and moved west where he became immersed in hippie counterculture. Uh, He did make a living doing construction work, uh, but in 1967, he ran into Manson, Mary Bruner, Lynette Fromm, and Patricia Krenwinkel in Oregon. And so he became Manson's lieutenant. Uh-huh. Second in command. Uh, Davis was also a good musician and had an interest in Scientology and was an ex-con. Okay. Okay. So... Um, he had also briefly uh, lived in England working at the Scientology headquarters there, but he was kicked out because of his uh, drug use and returned to the United States where he rejoined the family. Uh, his job was to act as comptroller, handling all the stolen credit cards and fake IDs of the family because that was their main uh, main bread and butter was fraud and theft. Uh-huh. They, and they, they didn't finding rich people to bring into the family so that all their possessions and money go to Charlie. Okay. Okay, so the whole deal was let's line Charlie's pockets. Pretty much. Okay. Because okay. It, what's interesting is even when somebody came in and gave all their, their assets to Charlie, the family was still dumpster diving at grocery stores for food, uh-huh. stealing clothes, stealing credit cards. And, you know, when you look at some of the the film during that time, you know, they were probably stealing clothes from thrift stores. And they didn't wear a lot of clothes when they were on the ranch, from right. what I understand watching some of the documentaries. Okay. Okay. So basically he kind of acted as the treasurer, I'm assuming. He's kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, sort of. And I think, you know, I think when it came to cash money... And things like that. I think probably Charlie, you know, they were buying drugs, selling drugs, involved with biker gangs, selling drugs. So, you know, who knows? Right, Um, right. So what about uh, Bobby 
and I'm not even going to try to attempt that last name. Bobby Boy. What's interesting well, what? is with that last name, you'd think he's from Louisiana, but he's right. not. Right, right, <laughs> He was the oldest name. of. <laughs> uh, he was the oldest of five children born in Santa Barbara, California, in 1947. He uh, had an interest in music from a very young age, and taught himself to play guitar. Uh, he had an affair with a cousin, or a cousin's wife, rather. And wow. when the cousin left, he ended up being uh, having to play the role of husband and working for a trailer company to support cousin's wife and child. Uh, he moved to Los Angeles eventually and briefly played in a band called Grassroots which would later be be renamed Love, neither of which I've ever heard of. Um, yeah, me too. His nickname was Cupid, and, you know, when you look at his pictures, even now in his 70s, he is still one good-looking man. <laughs> and I remember when I read Helter Skelter as a kid, seeing that the pictures of Bobby Boussoulet, thinking, what a shame. Because he was an extraordinarily good-looking man. Uh, He also became friends with Frank Zappa and was a backup singer on Zappa's first record, Freak Out. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. Was this all while he was part of the session? No, no. This was prior to joining Manson. This was prior to joining Manson. Uh, he did move to the Bay Area eventually and began playing with a band called The Outfit. Then he started his own band called Orkustra, and they uh, that band played gigs in the Bay Area from 66 to 67. Uh, Boussoulet also appeared in Kenneth Anger's film Lucifer Rising playing the part of Lucifer, right. and he helped compose the score. <laughs> so this is a guy who had some genuine talent right. that could have gone a long way, you know, could have been going to the Academy Awards and getting his first Academy Award this year right. if he hadn't strayed. off the path uh, into Charlie uh, Manson's uh, arms. Right, right. So, uh, this was another one I'm assuming that Charlie targeted probably because of his uh, minor, at this point, fame, and he thought he could get some money out of him, so uh, I'm assuming that's why he targeted him. Well, I think he actually, I think... Um, Charlie didn't really target him, so per se. Uh, Lee uh-huh. did have genuine musical talent, so I think Charlie okay. saw a kindred spirit there, and thought that Lee's talent could help his career. Okay. And so then Bobby just started hanging around with them, and then the drugs and the women. 
and he just got man, you in. know, the men aren't going to leave. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, so he stayed and uh, <clears throat> ended up. Ended now, up yeah. I'm going to go ahead and take a wild assumption that Texas is from Texas. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Charles Denton Watson was born in Dallas, Texas on December, 7th, December 2nd, 1945. He was the youngest of three children and grew up in the small town of Copelville. Uh, he had a happy childhood. He looked up to his parents who ran a gas station in town. The Watsons were a church family, and he became more involved in church activities as he got older. He was an honor roll student in high school, and he held town sports records. He played football, basketball, and ran track, and was also the editor of his school's newspaper in his junior year of high school. When he went away to North Texas State University in September of 64, his grades slipped as he became more interested in girls and booze. Um, He got a job as a baggage boy for Brant Airlines. One of the perks of that job was free flights, and he would occasionally take a girl to Hawaii for the weekend. Very impressive, I'm Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, He began smoking pot at that time and experimenting with other drugs. During his senior year in college, he decided to go to California to visit a frat brother and came back to Texas, told his parents he was moving out west, and that was it. Uh, He did sign up for classes at Cal State when he moved to California, and he got a job as a wig salesman in Beverly Hills. Um. He ended up messing up his knee in a car accident in uh, Laurel Canyon, where he had been living. And he ended up dropping out of school and opening a wig shop with a roommate in Malibu. Uh, But that was a disaster, and it closed in a few months. And so then, to pay the rent, he started selling pot. Um, so one day Charles Watson picked Dennis Wilson up hitchhiking and Watson ended up going back to Dennis Wilson's house and there is where he met Charlie and the girls. And so Watson did have something, probably not a lot, but something. And he's one of those that came into the family and gave everything to Charlie. Um, because he had been he had apparently been making some good money selling pot. Um, he became Tex Watson when they went to Spawn Ranch and uh lived with the family throughout the fall of nineteen sixty eight. He moved into an apartment in Hollywood in November of 68, and then in March of 69, he went back to the family. Right. 
So, I mean, another guy that had an option to do well, but, you know. Well, I mean, you know, he was he was doing well. Family. He was doing well selling pot, so it's kind of um, comparative. You know, well, he I really did. He, he had the opportunity to do well. You know, but I think for some of these people, um, the excitement it wasn't exciting enough for them, right? Or something in their brain said, you know, don't have a nice, quiet life like mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I don't know. Right. But right. they they all ended up, um, you know, putting themselves into a bad place. So, what do we know? Let's talk about our first female in the group, because I yeah. want to know what on earth possessed her to hang out with Charlie after finding out all this shit that he was into. <laughs> well, you know, Susan Atkins, uh, Susan Denise Atkins, she was also a California girl. She was born on May 7th, 1948. Unfortunately, when she was a teenager, her mother died of cancer. And that had a profound effect on her. Um, the I read, she wrote a book in the 70s called Child of Satan, Child of God. And I actually read uh-huh. it. Um, I think she had some personality issues. Probably stemming in part from her mother's illness and death and her father's alcoholism. But she right. also, I think, had a need for attention. Okay. And she just didn't get enough attention. Uh, she was constantly fighting with her father. And as a teenager, I think she was about 16, she dropped out of school and moved to San Francisco. She initially got a job as a telemarketer and rented a room, but she found herself poor, lonely, and depressed. So Uh she quit her telemarketing job, started waiting tables at a coffee shop. Um, She hit the road with a couple of escaped convicts and committed several armed robberies up and down, up the West Coast, and was caught in Oregon. She got probation after serving three months in jail, went back to San Francisco and started working as a topless dancer. Hmm. And okay. actually, it was there in San Francisco that she danced in a show called The Witch's Sabbath, which was organized by Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan. So Susan was kind of, Susan was a little bit out there already. Correct. Because, I mean, I I meet three ex-convicts or escapees. I'm not going to go on the road with them and start committing armed robberies. I'm going to say, it's nice to meet you, get the hell out of there and call cops. Yeah, exactly. Hey, by the way, you know, I mean, that's that's how I am wired. Um, (laughs) So, um, she quit her job as a topless 
Yeah, we're no, we're normals. Yeah, exactly. Um, she did quit her job as a topless dancer and met Charles Manson. And she began traveling with the family, went with them to Los Angeles. Uh, one of the things, when they got their fake IDs, Watson renamed, I mean, Manson renamed everybody. And Susan Atkins became Sadie Mae Glutz. Okay. Um, this was another thing that uh, Charlie did with the girls. He would send them on creepy crawler missions. He would pick a house. He would tell them to dress in black. They would sneak into the house while people were sleeping and creep around rearranging things and or stealing things. Okay. Um, Sadie was also very demanding of attention from Manson. Uh-huh. which put them at odds occasionally. Um, and she was kicked out of the family for a while because of it. Uh, she was arrested. She was living in Mendocino, California, and was arrested for giving LSD to a group of local kids. And oh, they were wow. tried and... Uh, I guess not, nothing really sank in on that. Uh, in October of 68, she gave birth to a baby boy. Um, I think she said in her book the father was Manson, but I think it's believed the father was actually Bruce Davis. Okay. So I think Susan kind of um, uh, has kind of... A crush? Misrepresented her relationship with Manson. Oh, I thought I thought we were gonna go to the crush angle and say she had a crush on Manson. No, no, thought, I think she's I, I think she claimed there was more of a relationship. The different documentaries that I watched, he what he had some kind of relationship with Mary Bruner. She had a son by him. Uh-huh. He had a relationship with Lynette Fromm. Uh I think he had a relationship of some sort with Patricia Krenwinkel. Right. Susan Atkins, in none of the documentaries did they say anything about Susan Atkins. Okay. Okay. So, um, that is Susan Atkins up to... I'm kind of stopping show. there. I'm stopping there. Yeah, I'm kind of stopping their lives prior to the murder. And then we'll, we'll go to that. But looking at their backgrounds, right. I mean, she... You know, she probably had some personality issues. Um, And, you know, prior to meeting Manson, she was not above committing a potentially violent crime. Because armed robbery is a violent crime. Even if no one gets hurt. Because there is a threat of violence. To get what you want, which is something that does not belong to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Lisa, let's go ahead and do uh, Miss Krenwinkle here, and uh, then we'll, I guess we'll go ahead and stop and save the rest and start next week where we left off. 
Uh, yeah, let's do, uh, well, let's go ahead and do Patricia and Leslie. Okay. We'll go ahead and start and do Patricia and Leslie. And then we'll, we'll break. And then next week we'll pick up with Steve Grogan because the rest of the family members were peripherally involved in murders or witnesses to murders. Okay. All right? Okay. All right. Uh, Patricia Diane Krenwinkel was born on December 3rd, 1947 in Los Angeles. When she was 17, her parents divorced, and she stayed in California with her father, who was an insurance agent and probably made pretty good money. Her mother had moved to Alabama. After high school, Patricia moved to Alabama and lived with her mother and attended a Catholic college. She taught Sunday school and had thought about becoming a nun. After one semester, she dropped out of college, moved back to California, and moved in with her half-sister, Charlene, and got a job as a processing clerk. In 1967, in September, she met Lynette Fromm, Mary Bruner, and Charles Manson on Manhattan Beach. Uh, After sleeping with Manson, she decided to go with him and the girls to San Francisco, leaving her car and final paycheck behind. Um, uh, Something about him, he must have been really well endowed. Because he was nothing to look at, and he was five foot two people. Um, Within the family, she had a quiet but intense personality. She helped take care of the family's children, and she was dedicated to Charles. Manson. Um, She's one of the people who met Dennis Wilson and ended up bringing the family into Wilson's mansion. And she was also arrested in Mendocino for giving LSD out to the kids. Um, She often went by the name Katie. Uh, That was her nickname that, that Manson christened her Katie. And then Okay. Leslie Louise Van Houten was born on August 23, 1949, in Los Angeles. Uh, she grew up in a typical middle-class household. Her father was an automotive auctioneer, and her mother was a schoolteacher. Um, the Van Houten family adopted a boy and girl from Korea, and in 1963, her parents divorced. Uh Leslie attended Monrovia High School, twice elected homecoming queen. Uh, But she also, like a lot of kids at that time, discovered hallucinogenic drugs and grades started to slip. Um, So she drifted away from all her extracurricular activities and that thus began the downward spiral uh, of her life. After she graduated high, high school in 1967, She moved in with her dad and began attending a business college, Um, but she also started gravitating towards spiritualism and was planning to live in a yogic spiritual community. Uh, In the summer of 1968, she was visiting friends in San Francisco, met Catherine Cher, Bobby Boussoulet, and his wife, Gail, and began traveling with them. And then in September, she met Charles Manson at Spahn's Ranch, uh, she briefly went back 
to San Francisco and then came back three weeks later and never left. Uh, she uh, she said that she was absolutely intrigued and mesmerized by Banson and believed he was someone very special and extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> um, and, you know, again, she could have had a such a nice life, life. Yeah. a normal life. And she and just... That's who gets to mess around with Charlie. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. You know. Um, but that's... You know, that's... I've got to think, though, there was something going on with each one of them. Uh, I mean, if I'm going to guess, just looking at, like... Um, not Van Winkle, but the lady before her, uh, or not even that Van one, Winkle? the one, uh, not Van, uh, Susan. Atkins? Uh, yeah. If we look at Susan, I, honestly, if I look at it and I had to guess what tied them all together, they sound easily influenced. So, I mean, it sounds like they were looking for something and... You know, Charlie yeah. came around, I guess, off of right. what they were looking for. But, yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. He offered them what they thought they needed or wanted, but that's that was what he, what he did. Right. But for me, and, you know, we'll see it later with some of the other family members, when he said, go kill these people... There wasn't a switch in their minds that went click, oh, hell no. Right. Um, I, I mean, we'll talk about it during their parole hearings. Um, when we talk about the parole issues, you know, they try and claim that they weren't really into it. Uh, but after the murders and we'll talk about it during the trials, they all made statements in 1969 that make their claims now of being terrified or just going along with what somebody else wanted them to do kind of um, not believable. Right. And we'll we'll go into it, and a couple of them, Susan Atkins and I think it was Patricia Krenwinkel, were kind of base because in the family it was sex and drugs. Mm-hmm. Sex and drugs, that right. was it. And um, one of the things that Charles Manson would do was he would find out what your hang-up was when it came to sex whether it was doing it with the lights on, doggy style, you know, whatever. Whatever. I'm trying to think of some non-graphic terms. And and then he would, like, make you do it that way. Oh, wow. Over and over and over again until you you liked it. Um, So it, it was kind of 
you know, finding out what your insecurities are and then capitalizing on those. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, his his ideas were crazy or sound crazy. And yet these people wholeheartedly went along. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, he had a hell of a uh, way to convince people, I guess. Yeah. Well, definitely. And it wasn't uh, convincing him. You know, that's the thing. It wasn't convincing him. It was making him think it was their idea to begin with. Uh Right, right. Well, definitely. So this is going to be a three-parter, probably. At least. (laughs) Well, actually, do you want to... I think what we might want to do, we'll finish talking about the kind of peripheral members. But they're Mm -hmm. peripheral, so it should go pretty quickly. And then we'll talk Mm -hmm. about the murders. Okay. Sounds good. And then maybe break and the investigation can come the week after. Okay. Because, I mean, the investigation and the trials. And then the parole and post conviction can come. Right. Because there is is a lot of material, because there's so much. Yeah, I mean, it's so. Huge that it's just it's crazy. All right, so I'm I'm making notes here so I can update the schedule. So we're gonna do the peripheral members and then the murders, and then part three we're gonna do the investigation and the trials. Mm-hmm. And part four will be uh, appeal and post conviction. Right. Right. And parole. Okay. All right. That that works. So, yeah, yeah. There is there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of material, and there's a there are surprisingly a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, kind of spoiler alert. Uh, Watson went to Texas after the murders. Krenwinkel went back to Alabama after the murders. And both Mm -hmm. of them fought extradition back to California. Right. So, um, and Watson, I think somebody in Texas was trying to block his extradition. More on that. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We weeks. definitely we dove into a rabbit hole, but that's literally what Manson is—is is a rabbit hole. Right. Well, there's so many. The the dynamics are, um, you know, and, and psychologists have you know profilers like John Douglas have interviewed him and rendered their opinions about his his psychological makeup. And then psychologists uh-huh. have, have studied those interviews, and they've rendered their opinions. 
<clears throat> and it's crazy on YouTube there are all kinds of documentaries and things. Right. Uh, right. And there's a really good one that was on Fox called The Lost Tapes. Mm -hmm. If you can find it, you should you should look at it. Definitely. I'll check I'll try to check it out this weekend. Yeah. So uh, it was on Fox. Um, a little while back, it was still available on my on-demand. Okay. So, all right. Well, we ready to put a bow on tonight? Let's go ahead and put a bow on it. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLAN. And that's O-B-R-I-E-N-L-A-N-N. Join us next week on Tuesday, March 19th, for part two of State of California versus Charles Manson. We'll talk about the remaining members of the family that we wanted to profile and then we'll talk about the murders of Gary Hinman and Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, J.C. Bring, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frykowski, and Steve Parent. Um, and then we'll also talk about some of the suspected murders uh, that occurred prior to the Tate LaBianca case cases. And um, then if we have time, we'll talk about the investigation, but we may just save that for part three. Uh, anyway, thank you again for joining us, and until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. <laughs>